0: Welcome to the best of fight back with Jane Brown.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of fight back from the week that was. We started the week with a call by the Zoomers advocacy group, CARP, for Premier Doug Ford to fire his long term care minister, Dr. Marily Fullerton, for failing to protect nursing home residents against a second wave of COVID 19. Despite the months-long gap between the first and second waves, very little has been done to ensure that long-term care homes are not devastated by the virus as they were back in the spring. On Monday, Libby Nimer spoke with our Zoomer squad about the campaign, which has garnered hundreds of signatures on an online petition from CARP members and Zoomer radio listeners. Here are Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media and chief marketing officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, interim chief policy officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging.
2: As we have talked uh, uh, the last couple of weeks about the uh, inadequacies about what the Ministry of Long Term Care is uh, is doing, uh, we finally got to the point where we were hearing from our members and older uh, Ontarians themselves saying, "This has to stop. We're getting nothing but uh, promises and long term. We need action now." And the Ministry was not. Uh, paying attention. They weren't acting. Uh, the, Minister Fullerton is at the head of the ministry, and it just got to the point where we said there has to be change, and that's why we have a petition now that is calling on uh, uh, people to sign up and join our cry that uh, Minister Fullerton has to go.
3: David, what's your take? We need somebody to be accountable for the fact that over nine months, eight, nine months since last February or March, they really have been behind the eight ball every single time. So, you know, it's like a baseball team. You can't fire all the players, but you fire the manager. So we think that Minister Fullerton has to take the heat and take the rap for the failure of her, her bureaucrats. Um, and maybe if, uh, if, uh, Premier Ford does, uh, make a switch, it'll wake up the, uh, those bureaucrats, and that's what we're hoping.
4: Peter, I know that uh, as, as late as, a, as early, as late as a week ago, you were surprised she was still there.
5: When you're when you're long-term care minister, you can't pass the buck. You know, the, 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 the premier can pass the buck about the deaths in long-term care, and the health minister can pass the buck, but the long-term care minister can't pass the buck. It's, it's her bailiwick and um, it hasn't been well run. There's been mixed messaging. All the unions are, are up in arms. The opposition is calling for her head. Um, I, I don't see any, anything positive she's done. And um, I'm sure there has been, but it hasn't been well communicated. And I, I, I just, I, I think at this point, there, uh, there's no other choice but to either ask her to resign or to move on and, and push her out.
4: Give us the details on the campaign and what you're hoping listeners will do, will do. Starting with Bill,
2: well, we want people to go to carp.ca and to look at the petition. Read uh, read what we've uh, have put there. If you agree with it, sign the uh, petition and uh, and join the group. We'll keep you up to date on what's what's happening and make sure that uh, the government knows how you feel.
4: David?
3: CARP isn't saying, uh, get rid of the minister because we don't have a utopian nursing home or long-term care home. You know, it should be perfect. It should be running like a well-oiled machine. What we're saying is, if you have a short-term crisis, have you responded to the short-term crisis in a clear, organized way? Even if it's Band-Aids, even if it's less than optimal solutions, what are those solutions? Instead, we're getting contradictions, missed signals, misinformation. That's the point. It's not that they failed to instantly produce a perfect system. We know that's going to take time and take money. But we have the houses on fire right now, and we're just not seeing enough uh effort that looks like they're they're in control of what they're doing and that's the real reason we think the minister's got to go it needs energy it needs commitment it needs clarity it needs a vigorous hand at the till and that's not what we're seeing
4: peter uh your final thought
3: um
5: yeah you know even if this doesn't result in the minister's uh dismissal and, and look we're not we're not just shouting out to to fire her because we want a, a scapegoat it's just you know the 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 call might put the heat on her to produce better results and if that's the outcome that's a great outcome you know we don't we don't necessarily need a a scapegoat but we need action and and if this spurs the government and it spurs Dr. Fullerton to action that that that's a, that's a great outcome as well
1: Peter Moggrich, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Sign the petition by going online to carp.ca. You're listening to The Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Still on the topic of long-term care, Fightback went straight to the Minister of Finance to find out why there was no costing out in the recent Ontario budget of a plan to increase direct daily care for nursing home residents to four hours by 2024-25. This was among the questions Libby asked of Rod Phillips when he joined her for a conversation on Monday.
6: We have put the cost of that into our long-term financial plan. This is going to involve Libby hiring tens of thousands of more staff. We're not waiting for, for four years to to, to to see improvements. We're going to see them over time, but we're going to have to scale up on the training side. I've already talked to the Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, about the important role that immigration can play. Uh, we've made some adjustments already for the immediate term in terms of salary levels. So this is a major systemic change that we are going to See, get done, and uh, and there'll be the next steps of the plan in the March budget.
4: So there is no figure, or you don't have a figure yet of what that will cost.
6: We'll bring the next step of the plan forward in March with the March budget. This is a, a problem in long term care. Uh, you know, all of us acknowledge that the tragedy in long term care, both in Ontario and the rest of Canada and around the world, is. Is one of the real dark clouds out of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, it has taken again successive governments not to deal with this. And let the other aspect we've been dealing with and are dealing with is is the physical facilities. Uh, the quality of care is so critical. Um, but we've set aside one point seven five billion dollars to, you know, be an investment in the building of thirty thousand beds and um, committed to four rapid builds uh, around the GTA that are going to see twelve hundred beds built. Um, by the end of 2022 you know between 2011 and 2018 there were 611 built beds built in the entire province when when tens of thousands were needed just those four facilities are going to see double that number built uh you know before uh before or by 2022 so you know this this is a big challenge uh the premier's committed to uh, fixing it and the money will be there to do that
4: Safe to say the opposition doesn't buy those explanations. And on the line, I have Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca for his take. Our big concern here is long-term care. And there was no allocation in the budget for that promise to staff up. Uh, What do you make of that?
7: I think that eight-plus months into this pandemic, when we've all seen the heartbreaking stories coming out of nursing homes and how vulnerable seniors, their families, frontline workers in those nursing homes have just gone through, really gone through hell. I, You know, I think that there's no excuse um, for how disappointing it's been to see that Doug Ford did not come for, forward with an urgent plan that would have dealt with things like the four hours of care with um, ongoing increases in compensation for the personal support workers who are in working in those homes doing heroic work. I mean, it's just shocking to me that for all of the nice platitudes and the things that Doug Ford has said from the podium throughout the pandemic, that he could not have mustered the leadership uh, to and the resources to make the situation better. To me, is an absolute betrayal of those vulnerable seniors and their families.
4: Well, the finance minister told me he said, "Hey, uh, we we haven't worked up all the numbers yet. Uh, we haven't put all that money aside, but it, we will do so in the March budget. Is is that soon enough?"
7: <laughs> well, listen. I mean, I, I know Rod. I know I, you know he's a decent human being. I, I caught the tail end of the interview. I. I don't understand how that's possible. I've had the honour of serving inside the Cabinet Room in two senior portfolios uh, over the course of four years not too long ago, and I just don't understand how, when we saw the Canadian Armed Forces report come out in late May, when we've seen that the overwhelming majority of COVID-related deaths in Ontario have come from those nursing homes and have been our aging parents and grandparents, I don't know how they could not have possibly been ready at this point in time. I'll also note that earlier in the week before the budget, when they made their announcement about increasing the hours of care, what they effectively told those seniors and their families is that when they finally, eventually roll out their plan, that it's going to take four or five years to fully implement. So if you've got a mom or a dad or a grandmother or a grandfather in one of those nursing homes right now, can you honestly look at them and say, you've got to wait four to five more years before Doug Ford can figure this out? It's just inexcusable to me.
1: Ontario Liberal Leader Stephen Del Duca and Progressive Conservative Finance Minister Rod Phillips. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, demand outweighs supply of the high-dose flu vaccine in Toronto.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zuma Radio.
1: Welcome back. On Monday, Zuma Radio News learned Toronto Public Health is out of high-dose flu vaccine. And the next day, Fight Back confirmed there will be no more going forward for the rest of the season. This information came from local doctors who received a directive from Toronto Public Health on TPH letterhead. The information was not made public by Toronto Public Health, prompting concerns that Chief Medical Officer of Health Dr. Eileen DeVilla and TPH Board Chair Joe Cressy have not been transparent with older Toronto residents and Zoomer radio listeners. To discuss this important issue, Libby Snymer was joined on Tuesday by epidemiologist Dr. Alan Vaisman at the University Health Network and Dr. Alisa Naiman, a Toronto-based family physician with the Medical Station Clinic.
8: So we have in our practice about 7,000 patients. Two weeks ago, we received our last shipment of vaccine. We received 200 high-dose shots and 600 of the regular shot um, and as of now I maybe have about five shots that are left to give to my patients and after that I will have nothing left. We've been very restricted into who we've been giving it and I've just been hoping and waiting for our next shipment which, which was supposed to happen tomorrow but I just found out today that because it's Remembrance Day there will be no shipment and now I have to go and take time out of seeing patients to go to the depot on Thursday to pick up a new shipment. They told us today at the At the ministry depot that all
4: of the toronto allocation has occurred and that we will no longer be receiving any more high dose vaccine okay let's bring in dr vaseman in your opinion how dangerous is this
9: uh so the flu vaccine that's available widely uh the quadrivalent is the alternative option for elderly people when the high dose is not available the reason that the high dose is given preferably to elderly individuals those greater than 65 years of age that that has the the stronger evidence that it prevents flu uh, when compared to the other flu vaccines. The other alternative vaccine the quadrivalent which is broadly given uh, has been shown in studies to elicit an antibody response but the high dose was the one that showed a reduction in actual flu. So there is potentially for there's potentially a gap here with not having the high dose available.
4: One of the things Uh, that makes me find this very scary is is that when we finally have a a covid vaccine if it is supposed to be distributed through toronto public health we're going to be in trouble
8: so i think one thing that we might have to clarify and i don't know 100 percent, is that so toronto public health did send out uh, a memo to um to physicians maybe three four weeks ago saying that it's actually the Ministry of Health who is responsible for the distribution within Toronto. In other parts of the province, I think it's different. but Toronto Public Health, we directly order from the Ontario the ministry um, su- supply. and I think public health has is stuck like us that they just can't get access to the vaccine hmm. and then and and I've always said that this is the same as every year. every year the distribution of the vaccine has been terrible. This year we're stuck because I've had so many patients who have said, "I've never had the vaccine, but this year I'm going to get the shot, and I think just the demand has just has just amazed them, and they didn't they ordered an, an additional seven hundred thousand shots, but that demand has it the supply has just not kept up for the demand
4: Dr. Elisa Naiman, what would you like to leave us with on this? Everybody should do their part, everybody should really
8: limit the number of people that you're interacting with the virus is highly contagious if you live with multiple people in the house and one person gets it a lot of people in that house are going to get it we're sort of at a point now that people have to make a decision and if not things are going to get really really bad and we're going to be in for a, a lockdown so I think everybody has to make a decision and then in terms of the flu shot, just it's not ideal, but anybody who's still looking for, for the vaccine and if they can't get a high dose, they probably should go with the regular shot. Any shot will be better than not getting anything. And hopefully the third thing is hopefully the government can get their act together for going forward for when, when the COVID vaccine comes.
4: If it's chaos now will only be even worse later unless they can make a change. Yeah. I'll say Dr. Vaisman.
9: Yeah, I absolutely agree with the comments by Dr. Naiman. uh, if you think about when a flu, vac- when the COVID vaccine may be available in the springtime or just after that, this next few months are going to be absolutely critical. This is going to be the month where we're we could potentially see very high degree of mor- morbidity, mortality, or we can see, you know, something returning to closer to what we were like before. So hopefully, with some um, people adhering to the public health principles, people listening, the next few months hopefully it won't be that bad. But right now, the next few weeks will be kind of a big decision point here, what what direction we're going to go in.
1: Epidemiologist Dr. Alon Vaisman at the University Health Network and Dr. Alisa Nayman, a Toronto-based family physician with the Medical Station Clinic. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Canada's prime minister told provincial leaders this past week to resist succumbing to any pressure to keep the economy open during the second wave of COVID-19. Justin Trudeau indicated the federal government will continue to be there to help business owners get through the pandemic. On the same day, Ontario Premier Doug Ford endorsed a plan by Toronto's Chief Medical Officer of Health to keep restrictions in place in Canada's largest city, including a ban on indoor dining, movie theatres and casinos, to name a few. Libby Snymer spoke with our strategy panelists about the Prime Minister's guidance when they joined her on Tuesday. John Capabianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. And Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto.
10: I don't blame the Prime Minister for, for taking that particular tact at all. I mean, as, as we've talked about for months now, um, the virus is the boss. The virus is the one that decides how soon we're able to reopen our economy safely. And one of the challenges that's been faced by Doug Ford, and which he will continue to face, comes not so much from Ontarians as it does from his own party and his own caucus and his own cabinet, which is something of an ideological sense that, boy, we, we've, Screw, we've tapped down the screws too much, and we should allow restaurants to open, and we should allow gyms to open, and, you know, we've just got to learn to live with the virus, which is insane, right? It's like learning to live with a cobra. You don't. And so that kind of pressure is, is corrosive, and it is ideologically based, and it could be enormously bad for the economy because you, all you have to do is look at the number of cases in Ontario, and in Toronto, to realize that we have a big problem on our hands. Um, plus, you know, we've got a lot of, uh, we've got the colder weather coming, notwithstanding the last few days, a lot more people inside, Christmas coming, and just an inevitable huge number of family gatherings, and the very real potential that in the new year this thing could explode on us.
4: Karen, how do you see this, and are you worried that you might be shut down again? Oh, I'm still shut down.
11: I'm a gym, so I can offer some recreational programming, but 70% of my business is shut down right now. And so, you know, just, just to, from another perspective is that I've, we haven't had any outbreaks at my gym. We have 178,000 square feet and 50 people in this, or in this building at any given time when we're allowed. And so I have to wonder where the risk is in this building relative to a grocery store relative to other um, businesses that are able to stay open, relative to factories that are able to continue to operate. Um, so from a, you know, not, and I, I, don't, I don't believe we should, you know, I mean, the virus is with us, and I do believe we have to live with it in a risk-based approach. And I'm not suggesting that we just go willy-nilly and just open things up. But the reality is I've been closed for four weeks, and the numbers are still going up. So my question as, a, as someone who's running this business is, where is the transmission happening? because it's not happening at gyms, because we've been closed. Well, so I think it is fair to question public health, to say, what is your data revealing in terms of a strategy to actually combat the virus? Because I don't think the virus is in charge. I think we have tools at our disposal to aggressively target it in a way that maybe we haven't been fully utilizing.
12: John? Yeah. You know what? I'm far more in in, in line with um, with Karen than I am with Charles on this. I think that we you know, we've been at this now since March uh, and we're now coming to we're now nearing in year end. And and certainly there's no there's no uh, sort of line in sight here with respect to how we're going to be able to cope with this. I think we've we're all starting to deal with it. We're all starting to live with it in a way that is much more risk uh, sensitive and, and governments are still trying to grapple with the need for for health and, and ensuring everybody's health care with respect to also making sure that the economy is still uh rolling you know, we can't, we can't come to a complete shutdown yet again. We just can't do that. And I think that their governments are trying to come up with some ways of being responsible by saying, look, if there's more data, now that we know this virus, now that we know where it's, where, how it's being dealt with and whatnot, that there's ways of being able to deal with it in a way that's responsible. And I think that there are restaurants, I've been to a number of restaurants since, you know, since the stage two and now modified stage two. And I got to tell you, every restaurant that I've gone into is exceptionally careful with respect to what they do. They clean, they they take your number down. They track, they trace. They're always wearing masks. You can't leave the table without a mask. You can't be more than two or three people at a table. So there's a lot of responsibility. Now, of course, there's always exceptions to that. But I think that if you shut down restaurants, you're going to force people to have mm-hmm. social gatherings in person. Yes. At least if, if, you have to, if you have them in restaurants, there's at least some way of being able to trace and track them, and also some way of being able to control them. And I just think that you shut those down, you're going you're gonna to ask for people, especially when get close to Christmas, for more social gatherings, and that's where the spreads are going to happen.
1: John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischmann Hillard Highroad; Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village; and Charles Bird, managing principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, fight back's Tuesday strategy panel. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come: what you had to say about the week that was, and the fight back knockout call of the week.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown.
1: Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Joan in North York called about how challenging it is to fill jobs for personal support workers in nursing homes.
8: I'm an old RN. I've worked in nursing homes. But the thing I keep hearing from everybody is, why hasn't the government ordered um, or actually hired PSWs? Do you personally know anybody? Or does anybody at the station or anybody that's talking know any people that want to take a course to be a PSW and to be able to clean up the feces and the urine and all the things that go on, it's not a happy job. And, um, again, we keep talking about it, but where are we going to get them? How much are you going to pay them to make it worthwhile? I don't know if anybody has any answers to that, but uh, I'd like to know everybody is complaining about it. If they know anybody, that will take
0: the course. Will they, in fact? And now... Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week.
1: There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Ray in Jordan, Ontario, who phoned about Remembrance Day and his memories of World War II.
13: I was probably four and a half or five years old, and the war came at the end. My brother and I, Gary, and I built a straw dummy of Hitler. Now, the idea was that when the fire started in the middle of the street, the night of the end of the war, you were supposed to throw the dummy on. But our neighbors beat beat us to it. So we carried that straw dummy around town until he actually fell apart. So it was a lot of cheering, a lot of dancing. Um, My dad owned a shoe store in the middle of town. He put loudspeakers out in front of the store. And uh, everybody just had a great, great time that day and for the days after. And, and wow. both incidents uh, were very spectacular to a young kid at that time of uh, in life.
1: That does it for today's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby, And have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fightback.
0: The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham, executive producer Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.